Hi, I'm Kevin Giovanoni. I'm a neurologist based at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. And I'm discussing a very difficult case of a relatively young woman who has pretty active multiple sclerosis with poor prognostic factors. She had a very high lesion load, was started on a pegylated interferon, failed that, was subsequently switched to teriflunomide and has failed that. Um, her baseline lesion load was, according to her email to me, was greater than 30 lesions. And over the last two and a half years, it's gone up to 50 plus lesions. She's got multiple spinal cord lesions and her disability or EDSS score has gone from two to four. Since being on teriflunomide, she's got four new lesions and her neurologist has recommended escalating her to ocrelizumab. <clears throat> she has been following uh, MSLF and she read my newsletter around uh, HPV vaccination and uh, cervical cancer prevention and she took herself off uh, to be tested for HPV and was found to be positive for two viral strains and her cervical smear fortunately did not show any abnormal cells. So she's infected with the virus and potentially may be at risk of developing um, um, CIN in the future. I'm not 100% sure how oncogenic these two strains are, and I'd have to check that with a virologist or a cervical oncologist. Um, the, the thing is, she was about to start ocrelizumab and had all the other vaccines, um, but now she wants to delay starting ocrelizumab so she could have the so-called Gardasil 9 or the polyvalent vaccine that covers nine strains of the virus. The problem with adult women is that she has to have three doses, month naught, month two, and the booster at month six. So if you have that prior to starting ocrelizumab, it means you have to delay your start by about seven months, um, three to four weeks after your booster, so that you can have an adequate booster response before starting ocrelizumab. And she feels, a very, she feels very nervous about doing that. So when she did email me, I sent an email back saying, well, why don't you ask your neurologist to use cladribine because the vaccine responses, at least based on the COVID-19 vaccine data, are not blunted uh, on cladribine. And therefore, you could have your two doses of Gardasil 9, start your cladribine, and then have your booster in the second half of the first year prior to your second course. Apparently, her neurologist said no, because he's very worried about the cancer risk associated with cladribine and doesn't want to be responsible for causing a cancer if she developed a cancer after being treated with cladribine. <laughs> uh, the other thing was um, she wasn't offered nadalizumab because her JC virus serology came back positive with quite a high index, um, a 3.1, and that's come off the table as well. So she's been left with the uh, anti-CD20. Apparently, uh, ofatumumab, the subcutaneous anti-CD20, is not available uh, in the country yet. So this question is, does cladribine cause cancer? And I have to be honest with you, I have a conflict of interest. I am the principal investigator. I've been involved with the development of oral cladribine uh, since 2002, so for 20 years. And I uh, clearly am very close to the drug. And whatever I say now, you may not agree with me. But I personally think the risk of cancer associated with cladribine is not a real signal anymore. I think cladribine is unlikely to increase your risk of getting secondary malignancies as a result of the treatment. Now, I know in the phase three clarity trial, there was a signal. There were two doses, a low dose and a high dose in placebo arms. So there were three arms. There was no cases of cancers in the placebo arm, but there were four cancers in the 
two treatment arms. So when you do the right ratio according to the number of patients, a two to zero ratio. But when you've got zero in the denominator, there'll always appear to be a cancer signal. And this is why the regulators uh, responded to the signal and have it in the labels. Um, and that's why it's a black spot warning in the United States because of this imbalance of cancers uh, in the phase three pivotal trial. I personally think it's not real because, first of all, the types of cancers that we saw in the trial are not the kind of cancers you get with uh, immunosuppressive therapies. So we saw a breast cancer, a pancreatic cancer, a melanoma, and we also saw a choriocarcinoma of the uterus, which is the pregnancy-related cancer. Those cancers, uh, well, the other three cancers at least, are, we believe take years to develop, so it's unlikely cladribine caused them. The types of cancers you get with immune suppression are skin cancers, particularly basal cell carcinoma and squamous carcinoma and lymphomas, and we haven't seen a signal with that. So first of all, the types of cancers argue against it. Then my uh, colleague, uh, Professor Klaus Schmierer, and one of our, uh, one of our uh, trainees, well, she's an academic trainee now, uh, Julia Pakpur, did a, a meta-analysis where they looked at the cancer rate on cladribine-exposed people in the trial and compared them to all the other disease-modifying treatments, and the cancer signal was no greater. It actually was almost in the middle of what you'd expect based on other uh, treatments. What was very interesting, the cancer risk on placebo was abnormally low. That's zero cases is, to me, the outlier. That's what gives you the signal of the cancer. And when you uh, follow those uh, placebo-exposed patients from the trial up into the extension trial and into the safety register, which we did, they had a higher rate of cancer. In other words, their cancers caught up. So in other words, what we were seeing is they just didn't develop their cancers in the two years of the trial, but they developed their cancers afterwards, suggesting that there was a lag time before their cancers developed. Another trick we had to do is we had to compare the cancer rate in the exposed patients with what you'd expect in the general population. And there's a standard technique for doing this. The epidemiologists do this, and we compare to the so-called global cancer registry, which is a registry in the general population of the types of cancers that are occurring. This excludes skin cancers, but excluding uh, uh, skin cancers, we found the cancer rate on cladribine-exposed people. This is not only the trial population, but the extended trial population and what, what's happening uh, in the general the general exposed population, the cancer rate is very close to what you'd expect. Uh, there's a thing called the standardized incidence rate, or SIR. It's very close to one. When we first did it, it was 1.02, and it's dropped below one of 0.99. And what's happened is the confidence intervals, you know, the error around that estimate, was quite wide in the very beginning. But as we've repeated this analysis over the years, the confidence intervals has got narrower and narrower and narrower, and it's now very small, make it highly unlikely that there's an increased cancer risk uh, when you compare this to what you'd expect in the general population. Now, the other thing that people think is that cladribine is a mutagen. You know, it goes into the DNA, mutates it, causes cancer. And I think this is the legacy of the fact that cladribine comes from the cancer field. It's licensed to treat certain types of uh, leukemia, hairy cell leukemia and chronic lymphoid leukemia. And I think whenever a drug comes from cancer, it's automatically assumed to be a cytotoxic mutagen, changing DNA, causing mutations that cause uh, a malignancy. Well, I can be honest with you, when you look in cell culture, cladribine doesn't go into cells and mutate them. It's got a very nuanced, subtle mode of action. 
And although it works via DNA mechanisms, it's actually not a mutagen. It's called a clastogen. In other words, a term describing it as a drug that works via DNA mechanisms without causing mutations. And to be honest with you, cladribine by itself is actually inactive. It's got to get transported inside cells. Once it gets inside cells, there's an enzyme that sticks phosphates. Phosphate is called phosphorylation onto it. And it's got to get three phosphates to become active. And the enzyme that does that is actually expressed in, at high levels in lymphocytes, particularly B lymphocytes, and it's in very low levels in other cell types, which is why we see the effects of cladribine being mainly limited to the lymphocyte population and leaves the other cells relatively intact. I say relative because there's no absolutes in, in biology. Anyway, once cladribine is phosphorylated, it inhibits the enzymes that elongate DNA chains. And when the cell picks up that the DNA can't be elongated, the chains or, or repaired or whatever, it triggers the cell via danger signaling mechanisms to kill itself. And we call this process apoptosis, programmed cell death. Now, what's important about cell, programmed cell death, it doesn't happen immediately. It takes hours, days, weeks to happen. And the cell doesn't just burst itself open and release its contents. It dies slowly and it's then engulfed by macrophages and other cells that, that swallow it up. And this is why with cladribine, you don't get a so-called cell lysis syndrome. It doesn't release its contents. That often causes infusion-type reactions, temperatures, feeding out of sorts. And the good thing about that is you don't have to pre-dose people uh, who are about to receive cladribine with high-dose steroids or antihistamines because they don't get infusion reactions. They don't even know they're taking the drug. And that's an advantage because we now know that those high-dose steroids, and we've seen a few cases in our center, come with side effects. And the main side effects that I worry about is the mood effects, particularly psychosis, diabetes, hypertension. And the big one that I always worry about is what we call avascular necrosis or blockage of blood vessels into the hip joint, and that causes uh, damage to the hip joint. So we don't see that uh, with cladribine. So yes, uh, cladribine is not a mutagen. It's a clastogen. And you know, based on the biology of the drug, it's unlikely to mutate and cause malignancies via its mode of action. And another big clue comes from oncology. Yes, there have been these so-called registers where people with hairy cell leukemia and chronic lymphoid leukemia that have been exposed to cladribine-like agents, not only cladribine, fludarabine, clofaramine, and other so-called purine analogs. So these are the same class of drugs that have been treated with these therapies, and they go into a register and followed up over time. And in that population of patients, there hasn't been an increased secondary cancer or malignancy signal. Now, why that? Why that, is that important? Because if you are going to see a secondary malignancy signal, those types of patients are much older at a higher risk of getting cancers because of age, and we haven't seen it with cladribine. So I think both, based on all of this information I've discussed, I think the risk of cladribine causing uh, secondary cancers or cancers is very low. Uh, I'm not going to say zero but it's unlikely to be a big signal. And I think that's something you should find reassuring. And this particular neurologist's advice is wrong. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm hoping this patient goes back with this information and discusses it further with, with him. Um, <clears throat> so there are other options for this patient. I mean, one other option I would discuss uh, is that Maybe she should go on to natalizumab, even though she's at risk of PML, just for a 6 to 12 month period so she can have the vaccines and then switch to ocrelizumab later on. That's one option. So in other words, using natalizumab, Tysabria as a bridging agent. Or she can have ocrelizumab, just have the first two doses of the Gardasil 9 
have an ocrelizumab, you know, first and second course. And then towards the end of the first year before the third infusion, she gets herself boosted. And hopefully she will have enough immunity to boost it because anti-CD20 therapies like ocrelizumab are very uh, effective at blocking a new antigen, new antibody responses. But booster responses seem to be maintained. Although slightly blunted, they still happen. And I think the reason for that is that booster responses don't require the so-called germinal center in lymph nodes. Um, so this patient has got a few options. I also want to highlight um, the point that shit happens. And yeah, this patient's got to be aware, and you all need to be aware, that even though I'm saying that the risk of cancer on cladribine is low or non-existent, um, um, there will be people who have cancer for another reason and have been treated with cladribine. So people treated with cladribine will get cancers. What I'm saying is the rate is not above what you'd expect in the background population. So that's something uh, to keep in mind. The other thing I'd like to point out that this patient um, seems to be very intelligent. You know, the, the density and the uh, detail in her email explain, explains what tells me that she knows a lot about MS and its management and knows a lot about the mode of action of these drugs and immunity. And, uh, you know, why shouldn't she have some control over her decision making? And if she's prepared to take the risk, why shouldn't she be able to be offered alternatives to the therapies that she's been told she can have. And so this is a, an example of what I would call a patronizing paternalistic approach to medicine where the neurologist dictates what's what you can or cannot have. And I think she should go back um, with information and just try and have an open discussion. At the end of the day, it's her that's making the decision, uh, not him. Uh, the other thing I just want to highlight about this case, it, tells you how important vaccines, vaccine readiness, and the mode of action of DMTs is becoming. And I think this has been triggered by COVID-19 and the COVID-19 vaccines. And this is going to be the name of the game going forward in the future around DMT choice and how we use DMTs in people who need uh, different vaccinations, for example. Finally, just to say that um, I don't like doing this, but I am asking people who can afford to please subscribe to the MSLF newsletter. I am using the subscriptions um, to hire a, and I already have, I've hired a medical writer, a very good medical writer, um, and a website designer. And we're currently putting in place a microsite or a website called MSLF, which is going to be really the contents of these newsletters, but curated and written in a much more understandable way this particular medical writer is very good at lay writing. Um, but the important thing about the website is it's going to be, uh, you know, curated with the contents. It's going to be searchable. So you don't have to go searching through newsletters. And the whole idea is to create a living self-management guide for people with multiple sclerosis. So um, when I first started the uh, newsletter, I had a two-tiered system. You know, I, I kept case studies like this hidden just for subscribers whereas all the other content was available to everybody. And so since making it open to everybody, in other words, not having a two-tiered system, I've had quite a large number of subscribers cancel their subscriptions. So the income has actually gone down quite a substantially over the last few months. And, uh, you know, if, it can't, if this website can't support itself, I'm going to have to think of a, a, another plan and maybe go back to the two-tiered subscription model, which I don't want to do. So uh, I know... 
people like things for free. We all like things for free, but you got to appreciate that if you are reading something for free, uh, somebody's paid for it somewhere. Yes, my time is my extra time outside my day job, uh, which is working as an academic neurologist in a research-intensive university, and I do about 20% of my time looking after people that are missing the NHS. So I'm, I'm, I'm covered from a salary perspective, but it's making this a much better experience uh, and making it something uh, valuable to the MS community requires resources. And so, yes, I am charging maybe some uh, too much for this. I don't know. Maybe you can feed back to me. But without your support, um, you know, we can't take this particular uh, uh, web initiative to the next level, which I would like to do. And for those of you who have subscribed and are paying a, a monthly or yearly subscription, I really do appreciate it and thank you. Um, it's uh, going to make a big difference to what we do with this uh, website in the long term.